Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, filmmaker Alex Rivera. So we have a world in which capital is very free and workers or, or lower class folks are, are very confined. And I think the world that would be more fair or more humane or create more peace and kind of happiness would be kind of the opposite. Known best for his feature Sleep Dealer, Rivera will be talking to us about drones, robots, labor, and border walls of the digital age. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. I'm snowed in today doing this broadcast from the basement, not of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College, but the basement of my own house. I just spent the last two hours shoveling snow and engaging with my neighbors and thinking about survival. You know, when we get these sorts of snows, particularly in a moment where it feels as if there's probably no FEMA to come to the rescue if there were an actual true disaster. A lot of my neighbors have been talking about defense supplies, not really defense against bad people, but defense against the elements, against a, a nuclear power plant blowing up or a major power outage or something happening to the supply chain of food and natural gas. There's people with generators and people with lots of extra food in their basement or a month's supply of water for their family. And uh, I was talking to one neighbor who, uh, in anticipation of the competition 
that will emerge for food and supplies and batteries or potential violence in a uh, long blackout or energy crisis of some kind. He's got a pantry of food in his house that's hidden, but not very hidden. And that's his fake pantry. So he would use that. But then if some gang came in, like in... uh, (laughs) Like in Walking Dead, some enemy gang comes in uh, because they can see his family's doing okay. Then that stash of food is the stash he lets them have. And he pretends like is his stash, but then he's actually got a more secret stash hidden away in the basement behind a panel or something that then he would bring that food out after that and then repeat uh, for the next gang. And, uh, It's kind of funny on a certain level. It's kind of scary on a certain level. I mean, I understand that the idea, and it's smart, is that in order to get through a crisis, it's good to have individual supplies, to have food and water enough to last your family a few days or a week or two. But then what do you do about the neighbors that didn't prepare? If your neighbor then comes knocking on the door... What, you've got cans of tuna fish and bottles of water. Are you going to not let them have it? All right, so then you let the neighbor have it. And then the next neighbor comes, and they want some, and they want some. And then you realize that the stockpile of food that you made for your family for a week actually can't feed your whole block for more than a single day, if that, or your whole neighborhood once they find out that you're one of the people who stored. You know, it becomes like that uh, like that Twilight Zone episode where this one family is very prepared for nuclear war and the guy's built a whole bomb shelter and all the neighbors are laughing at him. Oh, you're going to need a bomb shelter. That's so silly. And then the, the bomb warning comes, the sirens go off, the family goes and hides down in the bomb shelter. Then all the neighbors are coming and banging on the door and the father just won't let them in. He's assuming that that they're all going to get blown up and his family will be safe. Then, of course, it turns out to be a false alarm. And now he's got to come out of the bomb shelter and engage with these neighbors who he had locked out of the bomb shelter all that time. And that's part of the justification for collective preparedness for government programs. It's part of the reason we have something like FEMA to begin with, because all the individual people can't be trusted to have all these supplies and things and first aid and iodine tablets or whatever you're going to need in case of one emergency or another. So we use government. This is sort of what government is for, for insurance, for the the insurance against the big collective problems. It makes up for the lapses and provides a a universal need. It operates as a kind of a commons. We all buy in with our taxes and then we've got the big storehouse. And most things in government are that way, whether it's the roads we need or healthcare or unemployment insurance or social security or Medicare or Medicaid. They're these large uh, publicly funded stockpiles of things that we would need as individuals in cases of emergency or even in cases of collective emergency. I think the conservative point of view is that this is unfair and silly and inefficient, that really, if you want to have a strong nation, everyone should be supplied. It's not every man for himself so much as every man 
and woman and family capable of providing for themselves. It's everyone's responsibility to have food in their basement and supplies and batteries and water and iodine and all the other things that you would need in the case of a crisis. Every Boy Scout keeps every supply in their backpack, or so the the legend goes anyway, in a real Boy Scout troop. No, you actually spread out the responsibilities. You work together. But let's not use that example. The idea would be that every individual should somehow be supplied and capable. And that if you don't, if you supply it for people, then the people just get weak. That you've got to have your own water. You've got to have your own stuff. That that the more supplied and capable each individual in the fabric of the community is, then the more capable we are as a group. The question is whether that works at scale. Does every single family need to have every single thing? Aren't there some economies of saying, oh, here's our local storehouse of food, or here's our our collection of batteries. Here are the things that we as a as a block or as a neighborhood or as a township. Here's the things that we've put together and stored so that they'll be available for those of us who don't have in the in the right time. What conservatives argue is that such a storehouse, such a top-down system, particularly on a federal level, it depends on on prediction, on administration. And it doesn't really enable the efficiency of a market system for each person to have the things they need. Uh, Of course, in that market system, we have to hope that each person is smart enough and capable enough to have each of those things they need. You can't have poor people who don't have enough extra money around for uh, meals ready to eat and batteries and supplies. You can't have them, but at least I understand the philosophy that they're trying to promote. It just doesn't happen to work in the real world where there's still uh, people without homes with basements to store all that stuff. So the whole the whole idea, this whole scenario reminds me a little bit of the, the Seven Samurai. I remember when I was watching that. It's about this town that's getting all their stuff robbed by these bad guys. And, uh, you know, all their food, they it, it's... Uh, there's a version with bugs that more of you have probably seen where the big crickets are coming, taking stuff from the ants. But these, uh, you know, bad guys are coming, bandits are coming and taking from this, you know, small town. And they go out and they hire these seven samurai guys to come protect them. And I remember when I was watching the movie thinking, well, why do they have these seven samurai guys protect them? Why not just teach the whole town kung fu and everyone should know how to protect themselves and then you don't need seven super guys to come protect your town but the real answer you know the real answer is both you know you want your whole town to know as much kung fu as possible to do local bottom-up preparedness and resource pooling and mutual aid and have a volunteer fire department and ambulance department and civil service you want them to have daycare centers for children and the elderly you want you want all of this local resilience at the same time that you still want some top-down expertise and supplies and and bridge building and Medicare and Medicaid, you know, the things like daycare centers for children and community centers for the elderly, these really aren't best provided 
by market solutions. They're best provided by community awareness, by the tender, loving care of neighbors, uh, local responsibility, you know, because these are universal needs, and they're generally met through human-to-human kinds of activities. And those human-to-human activities are not the things that we want to be looking at as new profit centers, as new ways of extracting value from a community, but really the purpose of community, the purpose of life, the joy of being alive is participating in these kinds of things. The reason you move into a community is to be knit into the fabric of that community by getting to do the kinds of resource pooling and mutual aid and volunteer activities that contribute to local resilience. But those alone don't meet the challenges of a real society of our size and scale with the kinds of long supply chains that bring food to our markets and bring electricity and national gas to our towns that coordinate our electrical grid and our emergency preparedness and our transportation system. These are things that are supplied or organized by more centralized administrations. Those central administrations are more resilient when they've got smart kung fu ready populations and kung fu ready populations do better when they're supported by large scale institutions that are there to help educate and supply them with what they need. You know, in community resilience, There really is no us and them. There is no door to a bomb shelter that has us on one side and them on the other side. In real community resilience, there's just us. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. The notion of an us and them took an altogether new hue when I was introduced to the work of today's Team Human initiate, filmmaker Alex Rivera. His movies, like Sleep Dealer and The Sixth Section, challenge the notion of borders and identity in a digital world. Here's something you you just said. Maybe this was to NPR to somebody. You said, the military drone is a transnational and telepresent kill system, a disembodied destroyer of bodies. As such, it is the most powerful eruption and the most beguiling expression of the transnational vortex. For me, that summed up so much of what your work is about, you know, and you're looking at something that I've been looking at too, although through a different lens, is for me, the shift from a television media environment to a digital media environment seemed to engender this whole global village. We're all connected and it's all going to be great and all the national borders are going to go away. But it actually did mostly the opposite, almost as if the discreteness of digital technology and yes, no, digital polarity has created more boundary conditions and more divisiveness. How are you resolving that paradox sort of in your head and in your work? Well, thanks for the question. Thanks for having me. You know, for the past 20 years, I've been looking at sort of, it started inadvertently, but looking at that paradox you describe, a paradox of uh, that we live in an age that's more and more connected than we could ever imagine in 
many, many ways. And yet an age of more and more border walls, of more and more uh, kind of xenophobia and in this country anti-immigrant sentiments. This exploration for me started in the 90s. Um, and back then, um, you know, we might not remember, but California was the hotbed of anti-immigrant sentiment. There was Prop 187, Governor Pete Wilson, vigilantes on the, the U.S., Californ- uh, the California-Mexico border, a group called Light Up the Border that would drive their cars there and turn on their headlights to patrol for undocumented crossers. And in the mid-90s, there was the birth of the internet, the kind of popularization of the internet, um, the NAFTA and this kind of rhetoric of globalization and free trade. And so back then you could start to see these this paradox emerging. Border walls going up, um, anti-immigrant sentiment on the rise, and a new rhetoric of a global village, of a dis- dissolution of borders, of boundaries disappearing in this kind of digital space. And so I started to sort of scratch my head and wonder, like, what's going on here? Is um, what is what is that conundrum? And now, twenty years later, for me, I really feel like it is. Um, it's one process. It's a process of sort of systems of surveillance and control being maximized to police working class people, uh, bodies of color, kind of outsider subjects to keep them in a in a sort of subjugated position in this moment of great tumult, of great connectivity, of globalization for the elites, of a, a moment of great freedom and great um, acceleration of capital. So we, we're living in this moment where capital is sort of more free, more accelerated, um, elites have more mobility than ever before, and yet these systems um, seek to kind of contain and, and wall in, um, you know, working class folks, people of color, etc. So um, it's, it's been, you know, it's, but it's been a, a mystifying thing to kind of look at, walls going up and a borderless space emerging at the same time. Part of the thing I wonder about is, you know, so, and as you eloquently, you know, state in your work, particularly in the, in the, the latest movie, this idea that corporations are free to, to move across all these boundaries, but human beings aren't. So corporations tend to live in this globally connected world where human beings really can only aspire to be border crossers of that kind. And it makes me wonder, though, should human beings be aspiring to be international creatures or should we just be limiting corporations to be local yeah I mean what we should be doing is a is a great question I mean I, I and I don't have an answer to it but as a an artist as a filmmaker you know the, what I'm staring at and trying to understand is a system that we have presently in which in which capital and el- elites are are highly free and labor uh, the working class people who need to move around the globe to survive to eat to reunite with their families, to escape war and violence, are contained behind walls. So we have a world in in just a f- two sentences in which capital is very free and workers or the or lower class folks are, are very confined. And I think the world that would be more fair or more humane or create more peace and kind of happiness would be kind of the opposite contour. A work a world in which labor was more free to move. I don't necessarily want people to move. I don't think the process of migrating is a happy process or necessarily a good process, but it's a necessary process for a lot of people. And I think when it becomes a necessity, it should be a humane uh, process of of seeking freedom um, of movement, you know? So I think for me, labor should be more free to move around, working class people more free to seek hope 
and capital should be slowed down and made more localized and, and controlled so that it can be organized against and, and can be put to work in the service of communities. You know, when capital is absolutely free as it is today, there's a factory in X location. It could be in Detroit. It could be in Tijuana. It could be in Guangdong province in China. But if workers organize against that factory, they can shut down and move. The liquidity and acceleration and kind of hyper-freedom of capital makes it very hard to put those systems, put capital to work for, for communities. Right. And if they do apply that liquidity to humans, you end up not with organized labor, you know, this is not, not Cesar Chavez stuff. You end up with almost labor as a, a, a spigot of slave energy. You know, it's like, oh, well, let's, let, let's have this open border. It was just so that we can get free slaves to come in. And as long as you have that spigot of unaffiliated, unallied labor without any sense of solidarity, they will, I mean, they destroy any real possibility of labor motion. On the, the right, uh, I think like folks like, like Trump, for example, have been very effective at using the rhetoric that like that immigrants crossing a border undercut the American working class, you know, and using um, kind of locality and nationality and those interests to oppose immigration and to oppose free movement of people. You know, for, for me, I, I would um, put a sort of different frame on it, which is that when you have an organized working class, you know, the freedom of movement at that point is not a, a threat to that, that you need to organize all, all working people should be welcome into these organizations, mm-hmm. you know, but you need to have that organization there to, to welcome them. So if you have a, a strong union at a factory, for example, then if there's immigration into that community, if there's need to hire folks at that factory, that they come into the union, that it be organized rather than, um, you know, but if you don't have organized labor, then you have more situations of competition between workers moving in and out of these communities. I don't know if that makes sense. It's not my area of exact yeah. expertise. I'm a filmmaker, so it's like, yeah, I know. You know I'm sort of, that, that's yeah. an interesting place to go too. I mean, I'm a writer, you know, yeah. so I write these books, and I I feel a little bit like a serial monogamist to certain issues. So you know, I'll write about oh, people are going to get programmed by digital technology. And then I want to move on to some other subject. And then people are like, oh, no, now join this committee on how to program things and make America great programmers. Or I'll do something on platform cooperatives and all. Oh, now I'm supposed to be an activist. So, I mean, you see yourself more as an artist and and provocateur than an on-the-ground activist, right? Well, um, my practice has been kind of divided into two realms. And one realm is kind of uh, yeah, sort of provocateur. It's, I want to raise kind of philosophical, political questions about the the world we live in, you know. And my questions have been a lot around these notions of nationality, borders, migration, the kind of paradoxes we're talking about, about how do we see immigration in a, in a globalized world? How do we understand border walls in, in, a, in, in the context of globalization, etc.? And so that work has taken sometimes the shape of science fiction, imagining the future of the border. Uh, sometimes it takes the form of documentary, etc. I, I don't really call that work activist. It's like philosophical, trying to drive at the big questions and doesn't propose answers. 
it is what it is. That's it's an exploration. And then separately, because I, I I feel like we live in a moment of crisis. There's many many crises, and because part of my family is undocumented, I know that in the this immigration space, there's real lives on the line, and, and it, it it's a, a crisis day to day. So I've made some alliances with some activist groups that are really out fighting for people's lives, and sometimes they have media needs, and so I try to lend my my kind of expertise or skills as a filmmaker to those movements and work really in moments of kind of service and collaboration with those movements that are on the ground. And in that, that work is activist because there's actual membership that are working. There's people whose names we can say that are on, whose lives are on the line. So I've done a series of video collaborations with the National Day Labor Organizing Network. It's a group based in Los Angeles, but has a national presence organizing day laborers through worker centers around the country. Day laborers are like the folks that stand in front of a Home Depot. They, they tend to be the most visible, undocumented people because they're out in public seeking work. And so they've been a really, um, almost like the canary in the coal mine. A lot of times when there's an anti-immigrant sentiment rising. The first uh, site of attack is the day labor corner. So this organization that's been defending them and organizing them has been really kind of front lines in terms of the fight for immigrant freedom and justice. So they've had a really brilliant cultural strategy as part of their work, collaborating with musicians, graphic artists, and and people like myself, filmmakers. And so I've done a series of videos for them that I think are activist. So, you know, but for me, the litmus is, is it activist or not? Is it are there members, are there people on the ground, are there frontline communities at risk involved and committed in the work? Then I'll call it that. Right. So when you talk about like the day labor corner, which for me is something, and I looked at the history of the day labor corner, and it goes all the way back to the Middle Ages, you know, to the beginnings of chartered monopolies when they started to employ people for time rather than for value created. And they used the equivalent of undocumented aliens. You know, it was it was immigrants in the town square in Paris who would be hired to do that stuff. That's the symptom of the problem. Now, most of us think, oh, well, let's just round up those guys. Because as if as if day laborers on the in the Home Depot parking lot were the problem rather than the victims of the problem. I mean, so where do you see I mean, from your more activist side, where is the the access point in this? Where in this in this chain of injustice? You know, do we Mm. you know, where do we try to uh, to intervene? Well, I mean, for me, a couple values that guide the work is number one, that a person who is on a day labor corner is someone who's has other options have been closed off. And that person, if they're highly vulnerable, if they're afraid of being deported, if they're afraid of working for an employer who might not pay them, and then when they don't pay them, they have no recourse because they're undocumented. The weaker that person is, uh, the weaker, weaker position they're in, in, in the sort of structure of our society, drags everything down. The higher position they're in, the more protected they are, lifts everybody, you know. And so um, so I think that that, on, uh, that day laborers can work in a condition where they're protected. So the organization that I work with builds day labor centers. So instead of standing on the street corner, they're in a building. So that there's someone there who's a kind of coordinator between the employer and the worker, that the job itself gets in the notebook so they know that it's occurring, so there's an agreement on price. So making that kind of transaction less underground and less dangerous for the worker lifts not only them, but everybody in the kind of economy in general, because they kind of define a floor of sorts in the economy. So if that floor has no bottom limit, if that worker is an entirely dangerous place, 
drags everything down. So number one, the day laborer should have uh, dignified and safe conditions of work. You know, I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yeah, I mean to to regulate and legitimize it to the, you know, to sort of push up from the bottom right up to the point of you know whatever true legalization would be. I mean, is a whole is a whole other step. I mean, and on the on the almost the exact opposite side of the spectrum of the undocumented alien who doesn't have freedom of movement and who has no rights is, I mean, for you, I think it's the perfect image, the drone, you know, which is the non-human actor that has absolute autonomy over over the entire planet. I mean, a drone as a as a symbol for you has shown up in a number of your uh, a number of your films and work. I mean, what 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 about the drone for you is sort of what does it symbolize and actualize for you? Sure. Well, well, my interest in drones started out by thinking about and trying to think sort of deeply and freely about the position of immigrants and undocumented people in this economy. It might seem like a big leap to go from undocumented immigrants to drones, but this is this was the chain of thought, was that in our society, there's this kind of hunger for, for labor, and it, it's a permanent thing, part of the American project, obviously going back to, to slavery and a kind of founding sin of uh, wanting people who do the most essential work needing them, um, but wanting to not have them, to not recognize them as citizens, to not bring them into the national body, in a sense. So needing work without workers. And you could see that, obviously, very explicitly during the time of slavery and in other ways, through the entire American project up to the present, and 12 million undocumented people here working, building things around us, running, you know, creating value all around us and not wanting those people. So I came up with this image of maybe where we're going is a world where we'd want a kind of a kind of robot worker and uh, that could be controlled by a person in Mexico, a person in the Philippines, someone far away who could send their pure labor into America through this drone, if you will, through a robot that they're controlling so that finally this, this country, this economy could get the work that we want. We could get the gardening, we could get the, the table busing, we could get childcare, we could get hotel maintenance done, etc. By, by workers who are not present, a kind of invisible worker. And so this image came to me of this robot worker remotely controlled from somebody who's overseas on the other side of this border wall. And inadvertently, and this was 20 years ago when this image came to my mind, I'm talking about 1996 when this image appeared to me, um, and I started to create it in short films and websites and a feature film, uh, it is the image of a drone, the, the drone being a machine that crosses borders that is controlled by somebody at a great distance. And so it's been a very strange thing for me like that this image that started off as a kind of satire as a meditation in my artwork then now has become a kind of reality all about us so the drone is this um transgressor of borders a machine that's controlled by somebody sitting you know in the military context sitting in nevada sitting in upstate new york the machine is free to cross all borders and but the person um you know, the the machine is almost like a transmitter of the person's energy. So the person stays local, the machine becomes transnational. But it's interesting the way you describe it is that usually we think about drones and we think about, oh, the poor kids at the wedding who get blown up by this thing. But you're almost calling attention to the the operator of the drone as a almost an unacknowledged source of labor. 
And in reality, as I'm sure you know, the drone operators end up with higher levels of PTSD, of post-traumatic stress disorder, than the pilots of real planes that are dropping them on people because of that disconnection. And and I was arguing in, in one of my books that it's because of the almost the temporal disconnection that in the afternoon you're blowing up kids in, in Afghanistan and then you drive home to dinner and talk to your daughter about her second grade class. You know, what does that do to the mind of somebody. Yeah. No, there's been this kind of fascinating um, progression in terms of the dro- the waves of critical thought about military drones, right? Where the first wave was kind of like sort of horrified at the idea of somebody, you know, a kind of teenager in, in Nevada blowing somebody up in, in, in Iraq uh, and calling it like a video game. It's like so sanitized. It's antiseptic. It's this frightening because it's a video game. The second wave of kind of critique or thought about it is this notion of the PTSD, which is that actually the the experience of what it, what enables the drone to exist are these new channels that transmit GPS data, that transmit command systems to control the plane, but visual systems, high-res cameras and systems to transmit live high-res images around the planet in real time that enable the, the the command center in a place like Nevada or upstate New York where they have these drone bases to witness what's happening. And it's created a kind of military space that never existed previously. Previously, you'd have like the infantry or people on the ground that are shooting and, and they're seeing blood and they're seeing death and they're dealing with that reality of military conflict, um, the boots on the ground. And then there was the Air Force. And you talk, you know, you read accounts of like the guys that, that dropped the atomic bomb, uh, you know, and they, they never had PTSD because they're sh- shoving bombs out of the back of an airplane that are falling down below and they fly away at night and they never would see it. The drone operator is almost sitting in a space in between those experiences or a third space that never existed before that's almost in some ways more intimate than the infantry. Because if you listen to the accounts from these drone pilots, they're watching a target site for a week, you know, and they're seeing, yes, they're seeing their target, their ISIS or their Al-Qaeda suspect or whoever it might be, and they're seeing his wife and they're seeing the kids, they're seeing a soccer game, but they're watching for a week. And then when they get the command to, to strike, they strike and then they watch for the half hour after that and they watch people crawling away and then have to make decisions. You know, uh, Jane Mayer and the New Yorker described how they have words for these phenomena. They call people who crawl out of buildings, they've bombed squirters, you know, and they crawl around and have to make a decision. Well, do we strike again and put them out of their misery or let them crawl away without their legs? And that horrific kind of theater of, of watching this and watching it from a position of safety has, is a psychological experience that never existed in the military space before, you know? I mean, so it's not sanitized. It's not a video game. For the drone operators, it is mediated. It is definitely, obviously, essentially and crucially mediated, but it's also highly intimate and and, and therefore very troubling. And that's, I mean, and that's the most extreme, almost the, the most archetypal I mean, uh, image of this. It, it, it's the most discreet. But, and I think you would, you would argue in, uh, in, in your movies that we're all experiencing this on some level, you know, or at least you're only going to have a sleep dealer in a world where the main population is going psychotic. You look around, you watch TV now. I mean, especially if you, which I do now, stop watching TV for 48 hours and then turn it on. And then you get a real blast of just how crazy what's happening is. What do you suggest we do? I mean, to kind of remain human in a world that is almost sleep dealer at this point. Yeah. Well, I definitely would, you know, I think one 
word we could use to describe the kind of condition we live in is of dronification, you know, of this kind of the kind of ghastly um, sense of living in a world where we're all connected, uh, where there's these transnational exchanges that are highly alienating, you know? And so it's a weird thing that we're more connected and more alienated. And what are the contours of that connection and alienation simultaneous, you know? So how is it that, you know, we, the things that we, touch, the clothes we wear, the, the, the commodities that we put inside our body that nourish us, we know come from Brazil, from China, from India, from Jakarta. We are, we are in a sense, highly cosmopolitan subjects. We're, we're global in our uh, everything we touch and use that, that makes our daily lives possible. And yet we have so little knowledge and actual human connection to those conditions of production. We don't know who makes those things. We don't know what their lives are like. We see in the news Apple putting up suicide nets around their factories, and we might read it on our iPhones and kind of say, wow, that's huh, that's too bad, and swipe, and what's next? You know, so we know that we're connected around the world, like in, in, in that the drone is the sort of epiphany of that, because it's this live connection, but we're, we're all in this kind of drone mentality of, of being connected and yet um, very alienated from the places that in, enable our survival and our, our kind of existence in deep ways. So how do we escape that? How do we challenge it? It has to be the reverse of alienation. It has to be producing moments of true connection, of, of listening, of, of, of exchange of stories, of meeting and sitting down and breaking bread with people and creating a, what the Zapatistas call a globalization from below. We don't want to... The word globalization can have a poetry to it. It can have a possibility to it. There is a, you know, creating moments of international exchange, dialogue, transnational solidarity, um, you know, creating uh, a culture of, of, of empathy and of exchange, uh, you know, I think that's a, a, a beautiful aspect of a, a, an alternate way of being. So it's a globalization from below, a globalization of listening and solidarity. Right, and yeah. I guess, and then, you know, training us to uh, uh, enjoy those experiences as the real thing rather than these uh, synthetic and mediated ones. yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for uh, for what you do, for joining us here in the, uh, the basement laboratory <laughs> of the uh, digital humanism at Queens College. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. And I'd like to thank our supporters, Meetup. You can start your own Team Human Meetup at meetup.com. Thanks also to Zago for designing our logo and helping us get started. And special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for letting us use their songs in these shows. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human is brought to you in part by Dode and Christopher Kane, who've both made monthly contributions through our virtual coin slot at teamhuman.fm. If you want to hear us on the radio, let us know or connect us with your local NPR community or college radio station. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. In the spirit of border crossing, we leave you with Kill Floor Rebellion by Stephen Bartolome. I see a desert sun.
cactus at my feet A body forged from stalks of corn They're swaying low beneath An eagle's rod, a golden road Revealed destiny Attended by a winged hope That sees my family free A letter to a long-gone wife That's offered up in smoke A signal to a distant god While I'm calling out for help Money sent off every week to children left to feed. A job that breaks my aching back and bends my swollen knees. To slave away in factories with a blue sting in my heels. The weight of walking day and night, identity concealed. Scrub the floors, the one stained stone, a carcass pendulum. The flesh for feast, the fatted calves with a kill floor swinging song. Hey!
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.